Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As we settle into the last quarter of the year, we hear from two of Fidelity Canada's equity research analysts, Robert Reynolds and Claire Fleming, who explain how industrials and materials are shaping up in Q4. They speak to host Brian Borkowski about the two sectors, how they relate and collaborate. Robert points out that in the top 20 performing Canadian stocks in the past five years, five were industrials. They talk about the impact a recession would have on the two sectors. In regards to materials, Claire points out that many companies have stronger balance sheets than in past recessions, but still, Elevated global energy prices are creating major differences in the outlook for companies compared to past cycles. Claire and Robert also touch upon how geopolitical tensions in Europe are impacting industrials and materials, and how the sectors could look like once China reopens after its strict zero-COVID policy. Today's podcast was recorded on November 4th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Bobby Reynolds and Claire Fleming, thanks for being here. Nice to be here. So my first question to both of you, I know you've been on this webcast before, but what is the connection between industrial and materials? Why do we have you on together today? Great question, Brian. So There's a lot of connections between the industrial sector and the materials sector. A lot of industrial companies are logistics providers or suppliers to, you know, mining companies or agricultural commodity companies. And so by, you know, working on these sectors, myself and Claire together, we can get some insights on, you know, potential cost inflation in the pipe for mining companies and how customer health might look for for the industrial companies selling into these uh, customers. Great, Claire. How do you how do you see that connection? I think I'll just follow up on Bobby's point by emphasizing that this creates a great opportunity for us to help add value for PMs that we work with just by being able to collaborate on research with exposure to similar themes. Um, so, for example. Some of our sub-industries might have exposure to different areas of the value chain in mining or agriculture. And by presenting um, PMs with our research on these sub-industries, we can help them get exposure to different themes by um, allowing them to help invest in the best area of the value chain possible to get exposure to some of those themes that we think are interesting on the medium to longer term outlook. Great. So you both were on in August. Um, what has happened since your last webcast? Where are we at in, in, in both the industrial material sectors? Um, Claire, maybe you can start. Um, so we were last on this webcast a few months ago, and I think it's interesting to look at the Canadian materials benchmark performance versus the index and see that within the past few months, um, relative performance has been within a few percentage points. But underlying uh, that headline number, there's been a lot of variation in relative performance across the sub-industries that make up the Canadian Materials Index. Um, For example, the copper and diversified miners, 
um, forest products, agriculture and commodity chemicals. There's a lot of different drivers impacting the relative performance of those groups. Perhaps I'll start with what's different and then emphasize what themes are still the same and in focus. I think we've seen changing demand expectations in the shorter term um, across some of these sub-industries based on differences in the relative economic outlook between North America and Western Europe exposed commodities um, relative to some of the more Asian exposed commodities than the Canadian materials benchmark. So in the shorter term, there's been some changing expectations for sub-industries like forest products that have exposure to the North American um, housing market that's been under a bit more pressure from some of the higher interest rates in North American and European economies. When looking at some of the other areas of the coverage group that have more exposure to demand um, from Chinese economies, um, some of the continued strength in infrastructure investment in the region, as well as more recent rumors about um, potential um, paths from COVID zero in the region are starting to increase some of the potential demand expectations for commodity chemicals or base metals with exposure to that group. In terms of what's the same, I think on the last webcast, we were talking a lot about cost inflation and how that's impacting the capital expenditure outlook, as well as operating cost outlook for commodities companies across my coverage group. And I think that's still a key theme that's impacting companies as we move throughout the Q3 earnings reporting season. Great. And, and, and Bobby, before, before we get to you, I'm just curious, uh, Claire, I mean, materials has been up quite a bit today. Anything driving that that you can see? What, why, why, that, uh, why that kind of tear that it's on today? I think where we've seen is some of the relative strength across subsectors has been in um, some of the copper and diversified mining sub-industries. And I think that follows up a bit more on the point that I made about uh, some of the potential changes in market expectations for demand from China-exposed materials. Um, so I think it has been related to some of those rumors about potential changes in policy or starting to get more visibility on the path from COVID-0 um, is viewed as incrementally positive for some of the end markets whether they're industrial or consumer applications that really require base and bulk materials as inputs to those end markets that have caused some of the more recent strength we've seen within the uh, materials industry. Great. Bobby, uh, uh, what's, what's happening since the last webcast in, in industrials? Yeah, so if you look at August, uh, it was a pretty bad first half of the year for most of the market, industrials included, especially if you were more cyclical industrial the economy still was still really hot in August, but the Fed was hiking aggressively and the market could really look forward to what those rate hikes would do in terms of the aggregate demand for, for the general economy. And a lot of industrials are, are levered to GDP growth. And so you could saw the multiples derating, but earnings outlooks weren't really changing yet, at least what the sort of sell side would have been forecasting. Fast forward to, you know, early November. We're finally starting to see some cracks in terms of these, uh, you know, tighter monetary conditions flowing through, you know, onto the ground uh, in the real economy. And so anything consumer exposed in the industrial space, so you could think about logistics companies that might move consumer goods. There's too much consumer goods in the economy right now. And so you're starting to see earnings weakness out of those companies. You're seeing anything housing related. You know, we were already worried about it in you know, earlier this year, but it's actually starting to show up in the data. And so it's becoming more of a confirmation of the points that the market was worried about three months ago. And now the question is actually, are 
some of these more cyclical companies, have they been derated enough such that you can look over the valley of whatever this you know, downturn induced by inflation and the Fed's efforts to curb inflation bring? And are they cheap enough to start to get involved? Or do you still want to stick with the more defensive names or the stocks that provide more visibility on what earnings will look like in 23? And those have been the outperformers year to date. Typically, those are the underperformers once you get back to the upswing of a cycle. And so that's what I'm wrestling with. That's what market participants and portfolio managers are wrestling with when they think about how to position themselves for 2023. I wonder just, just you know, we saw big job numbers today. I think people are sort of waiting for things to, to kind of turn in the economy and a recession to come. How does kind of a recessionary environment impact maybe both your sectors? If you look out in a few in a few months from now, if, if a recession may come, does that kind of change where you're looking at or, or how could that impact both of the sectors that you cover? I mean, short cough-out answer, it depends what the recession looks like. So what do we know in terms of where can we be confident that we're going to see further weakness? I think housing, anything housing related, it's pretty obvious when mortgage rates are 7% in the US and 5% plus in Canada that housing has already slowed down and needs to slow down more. You know, Part of the reason it hasn't slowed down more is there's a lot of backlogs and work to be done from home builders and from renovation perspective that just take time to work through. And that's why monetary policy works with a lag. So you haven't seen the bottom yet in terms of real activity, likely in housing related sectors. Consumer as well. I mean, there's conflicting forces for the consumer. The consumer, especially in the US, has saved a lot of money through COVID. They spent less. They got a lot of handouts from the government. But they're also facing a lot of pressures on their wallet right now, just from the inflation in essential goods, as well as potentially some hit to their sentiment from the decline in the value of their assets in the stock market and in the value of their homes. And so anything consumer related, you're probably going to see you know, continued weakness. On the other hand, the outlook has arguably brightened for some areas of the economy that are supported by government industrial policy. So Another thing that's happened since August is the U.S. has packed two large pieces of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And this is really, you know, the U.S. government being proactive to onshore a lot of critical industries in the U.S., try to decouple from China. It's a theme we can talk more about, but that impacts the outlook for a lot of Canadian industrial companies by virtue of its impact on non-residential spending in the U.S. But the problem is it also keeps the pressure on the labor market and the economy and arguably the workers that might not have a job in home building now or in six months can more easily find a job elsewhere. And so does wage inflation persist for longer and the Fed has to keep hiking for longer? And it, does that mean the downturn in the future is worse? And this is where it becomes very complicated and a bit of a circular argument. And it's why the market is, is so, so choppy. It's all of these debates it's having with itself. And I can follow up just on how increasing expectations for a recession in certain markets is impacting the outlook for some of the Canadian materials names. I think that Fidelity does a great job when you initiate on companies um, internally on really emphasizing that there should be sort of a downside risk or recession scenario in that work that you're doing as an analyst. And that was a great uh, foundation to have from when I initiated on this group of companies about a year ago internally to be able to present to PMs just on how I think about 
the relative downside risk um, across the companies within my coverage group and some of the different sensitivities by subsector. I think that um, across the group, of course, materials is incredibly cyclical. Most of the sub-industries are linked to GDP in terms of the longer-term demand outlook. So we definitely see a lot of volatility in the group on expectations for different levels of GDP growth. I think what's really in focus when we're doing this analysis is presenting to portfolio managers how we think about what these companies' income statements, um, balance sheets, capital expenditure levels might look like in a recessionary scenario and how we think about where trough valuation levels could get if we were to go through a recession and then let the portfolio managers take their view on sort of what they think the probability of recession might be into their um, investing process. Um, I think as well, maybe what's a bit different in this cycle are things that we're keeping in mind that could impact the relative performance of some companies um, relative to past recessions or downturns that we saw is that a lot of these companies do have stronger balance sheets um, compared to past recessions, just because we've gone through a couple of years where commodity prices were above average and allow these companies to generate above average cash flows and have stronger balance sheets, um, which reduces perhaps the risk for some companies relative to past downturns or recessions or balance sheets weren't as strong. And I think we're also seeing implications of some of the elevated global energy prices, especially in European markets, creating some differences in the relative outlook for companies um, compared to past cycles. So I think really there's a focus on recession scenario analysis for this group and also understanding some of the potential differences versus past cycles that might impact relative performance of Canadian materials compared to past downturns. You know, on Europe and, and just, you know, elsewhere around the world, the big story really for commodities, at least at least the beginning of the year, but I think still is geopolitical strife in Ukraine and Russia and how that's impacted the global kind of commodity environment. Um, Claire, where do you see, you know, how has the war in Ukraine impacted the companies that you cover and where do you think that could go from here? That definitely has been a key driver of relative performance across some of the sub-industries I cover. And I might spend a bit more time I'm discussing the agriculture outlook, just because I think that's one of the sub-industries that's been the most directly and indirectly impacted by the conflict year to date. I think we're still seeing the implications of the conflict um, showing up in global grain inventories and prices. Global grain stocks to use levels, essentially inventories remain very low relative to history. And that's playing out in terms of uh, crop prices, even though they've come off of peak levels when looking at things like corn futures prices out to 2025, um, still being over $5 per bushel. That's an above average level that um, is really trying to incentivize production from farmers globally to address some of the supply challenges that have been impacted by the conflict. I think more broadly than just on crop prices, um, the conflict is having a lot of implications for the fertilizer industry as well within the agricultural industry, just given the share of supply that comes from Russia and Belarus for certain fertilizers like potash, as well as the implications on the cost of producing fertilizers, because natural gas is used as a key input um, for certain fertilizers such as nitrogen that are typically applied annually by farmers. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of companies with North American assets um, responding uh, still by trying to increase their potash production levels over the medium term to help respond to some of that supply disruption. 
And we're also seeing the potential for higher nitrogen or other types of fertilizer pricing over the medium term, just from that higher cost curve that I mentioned has been increased by elevated natural gas prices, especially in Europe over the past few quarters. Great. Bobby, uh, how, how is that impacting your work sector? Yeah, so to Claire's example on the agricultural commodities, those are shipped via rail generally to port to be exported. So that's a nice tailwind for the Canadian railroads. On the negative side, you know, there are a number of Canadian industrials, whether they be engineering firms or capital goods companies that do have uh, customer bases in Europe. And the economic environment there has become more challenging as a result of the energy crisis that they're going through. If you're an engineering firm, you can point to the need for, you know, Western European countries to invest more in their own energy production and energy security as part of the solution to weaning themselves off Russian gas over the medium to longer term. So potentially that's a tailwind for them in a few years, but the, the more immediate impact is, um, you know, less demand or less health from their customer to purchase goods. And, you know, currency has also been a, a huge factor this year. If you're earning revenues in euros, it's a big headwind. If you, even if you're Canadian dollar reporter, let alone a U.S. dollar reporter. So that's something that's uh, been a factor this year as well. Great. Uh, Claire, what are your thoughts on copper? Um, you know, the climate transition, more EVs and, and the demand from both materials and industrials kind of around uh, climate change. So maybe, Claire, you know, what is your thoughts on copper and, and maybe talk a bit more broadly just about ESG and, and the climate transition? There's been a lot of factors impacting the outlook for copper over the past few quarters. I think prices definitely came off of peak levels from earlier this year, just because of some of the decelerating uh, GDP growth expectations, especially across um, North America or Western Europe in response to higher interest rates starting to impact the outlook for some of the more cyclical end markets for copper. But I think if you look at some of the more recent data points, which I referenced, um, about rumors of a potential reopening in China um, from some of the COVID restrictions that have been in place over the past few years, potentially being more positive in the near to medium term, as well as still favorable longer term outlook for copper, just given its role, as you mentioned, in applications related to the electrification of the economy, whether that's in the electrical grid and renewable generation or electric vehicles, perhaps providing more visibility on the longer term outlook for copper relative to um, some of the other commodities within my coverage group. Perhaps more recently as well, just to follow up on the implications of cost inflation and higher global energy prices in the copper sector, I think visibility on the longer-term supply outlook has perhaps become a bit more challenged, just given some of the volatility in input prices that we've seen. I think in the shorter term, just given that building a copper mine is a very long process, it takes several years, and it's very capital-intensive, in the shorter term, we will likely see some of those projects that have been under construction for many years starting to ramp up. But in terms of looking over the medium to longer term, Given how much uncertainty there is on the cost of building a mine, given the inflation in steel or labor prices or energy prices or other really key inputs globally, I think that's caused some companies um, to be a bit more cautious or just wait a bit longer before committing to new larger scale projects that would fill that supply deficit many years out 
until there's a bit more uncertainty on what the longer term input prices would be to make sure they're earning an appropriate return on capital. Um, so I think there's definitely been some more challenging near-term demand headwinds from decelerating expectations for GDP growth globally, but more visibility on sort of longer demand, longer-term demand from China, the electrification economy, and also decreasing visibility on longer-term supply growth in copper, I think might create some really interesting opportunities within the sector um, over the next few years. Great. And Bobby, just on the electrification angle, um, for, the, for the companies you cover, is, is that an opportunity there that you're looking at? Yeah. I mean, one of the great things about industrials is there's so many ways to play electrification and the energy transition. So specifically on electrification, you could look at building EV plants in the United States. You have Canadian companies that help the auto manufacturers actually set up these plants. And since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, and if you're an automaker, you get up to $10,000 a vehicle of government credits uh, if you set up your battery supply chain in the U.S. So there's just been a wave of work that's been announced since that act was passed in August. And it's been very helpful to the stocks with exposure to that theme. More broadly, I would say, you know, Canadian railroads are in sort of, they're not part of the electrification theme, but the climate change theme, if you want to sh save on emissions in your supply chain, it's 75% more fuel efficient to ship your goods via rail versus truck. And so it's a solution that companies can pursue today to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And then the engineering companies in Canada are also very well positioned to benefit from the electrification and climate change themes, uh, given the type of work that they do. Great. Um, so another question is whether industrials and materials can be an inflation hedge. Uh, Bobby, you want to take that one on first? Great question. For the most part, industrial companies cannot reprice their products immediately, but many of them do have pricing power. So this is actually an area of opportunity in some regard looking to 2023 is which companies have pricing power, but it comes with a lag. And so you've seen them get hit with input cost inflation in 22. So margins have been squeezed. They've been taking price, but that's just starting to flow through results or will start to flow through results in future quarters. And that's probably an area where the market might be missing something or getting it wrong. And that's one of the ways where you can find stocks that could outperform. Uh, and so good examples of companies with pricing power, again, the railroads, the garbage companies. And so, the, you know, those are two areas that I'd say are commonly thought of as having strong pricing power. And, you know, the market's been rewarding them this year for that. Yes, when looking at Canadian materials, the impact of inflation does vary based on subsector across the group. I think when looking at some of the base and bulk materials, such as copper, that's an example of a commodity that historically has tended to perform well during periods of rising or accelerating inflation, just given that for a copper producer, usually copper prices would be rising in an inflationary environment, which allows them um, to still earn an appropriate margin, even if some of their input costs are going up. I think inflation can be more challenging uh, sometimes for some of the more defensive areas of the Canadian materials group, such as metals and glass containers or companies that might just have more trouble passing through input cost inflation to the prices that their end customers are paying just because those prices would involve more negotiation or discussion than uh, some of the other commodities where prices tend to be linked to um, benchmarks. 
more closely. How has um, the relationship between Canada and China, has the export market for industrials and materials been strained at all by that, uh, by that relationship, which has kind of fractured over the last little while? As I mentioned earlier, I think uh, the outlook for China is important for a lot of Canadian-listed uh, materials companies, just given that demand for uh, copper still is over 50% coming from China. So I think uh, there's definitely implications for the demand outlook for a lot of these companies based on changes in the policy or economic outlook in China. In terms of geopolitical implications, there's been some more recent headlines, I think, about the strategic importance of battery metals and other critical minerals to the Canadian government outlook, given that there have been some restrictions of Chinese ownership or perhaps a bit more scrutiny on ownership of certain Canadian-listed companies that have access to really critical minerals within the battery metals value chain. So I think that's something that will continue to be in focus over the next few years and might have implications for the ownership or potential transactions or buyers for some Canadian-listed companies that have exposure to battery metals such as uh, lithium, for example. Bobby? Yeah, for the Canadian industrial space, we don't really have any manufacturers that, that sell their goods directly into China, or I should say none that are uh, significant companies in the TSX. It's more of an indirect exposure. You know, if you're shipping goods, so if you're a logistics provider, you're shipping them to port for them ultimately to go to China. If those exports need to be rerouted elsewhere, potentially you could be impacted. It's probably more on the supply chain or input cost side if you're a Canadian industrial. We still rely on China for a lot of inputs. And you know if that source of input gets cut off uh, and you're a Canadian industrial, that could be a source of risk in a future conflict, though we haven't seen it arise as an issue yet. So just just uh, continuing on the China theme for a minute, when international, you know, when China opens up, how could that affect international markets um, broadly and, and, and the Canadian companies you cover? You know, you, uh, Claire, you said that markets are more up-to-date in materials in part because there's an expectation that maybe they could open earlier or just there's more visibility perhaps into, into the opening there. But, but what is the real impact of that once things do open up? I think, as you said, there's certainly still a lot of uh, uncertainty on exactly the timing or pace of reopening in that economy, which is why even rumors such as the ones that have come out more recently are having such a um, dramatic impact on the performance of certain subsectors. I think some of the copper and diversified miners within my coverage group, as well as some commodity chemicals, might have the most exposure or changes in expectations if there were to be more visibility on that reopening, just given the share of demand for copper, met coal, um, global steel production as well, um, that is exposure to Chinese markets. Um, so although we're not exactly sure when or, or the magnitude of that reopening, I think those are the areas that might see more changes in expectations for demand relative to some of the other commodities that have a greater share of their demand coming from North American or European markets. Um, globally. Bobby, anything to add? Yeah, I would say you could think of the airlines. China is a reasonably large size market for some of the Canadian airlines, and it's basically zero right now. So that could be a nice tailwind for them when it reopens. More broadly, you have to think about the impact across the, the commodity space and what that means for aggregate global demand to things like oil prices and metals prices. If it's being demand's being depressed right now, because of China reopening, and we, we still have a tight market. So if that reopens, what does that mean for 
for all of these commodity prices and how does that impact the economy and policymakers and the stocks that we follow. Great. So, so we have only have like 30 seconds left. Uh, so just, just quickly, why industrial and materials? Why should advisors and investors look to these sectors for opportunities? Bobby, uh, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll start. So there's a ton of great businesses in the Canadian industrial space. I was recently sent a list of the top 20 performing Canadian stocks in the last five years, and five of them were industrials. And some of them are household names, some of them probably not. And so, you know, the, this is also an area when you're going through a bit of a, a tech downturn. We've seen it in past cycles, early 2000s. Industrials were big outperformers because you had a lot of demand for commodities and industrials were the picks and shovels that helped those companies enable that demand. So there's a lot of opportunities. Great. Claire? On materials... Um, I think that a lot of these companies are playing a role in really critical medium to longer term themes, whether that's providing uh, food security globally uh, through the production of fertilizers or helping um, with the electrification of the economy, as we discussed earlier, with materials such as copper, nickel and lithium that all have exposure within the Canadian materials benchmark. So I think especially as well, given how challenging it is to build new capacity, given cost inflation and permitting the time required, that'll create some really great um, medium to longer term opportunities for some of the Canadian listed materials companies who are playing a role in those uh, medium to longer term industry trends. Great. Well, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but uh, hopefully we will. I'm sure we will talk again soon and get a get another update in a few months. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.